The reason most Britons still believe that Hitler was going to invade Britain in the summer of 1940 is that Churchill loudly, brilliantly and famously told them so. Over and over. Privately, Churchill had quickly concluded that a German invasion was impossible and improbable. But he kept the story of an invasion going. Partly, it was to keep his armed forces on alert, ready, he hoped, to go on the attack later in the year. And partly, mainly, it was a bluff to get American aid. Churchill hoped he might even persuade the Americans to join an alliance against Hitler. The astonishing thing is that much the same game of bluff may have been going on among the Germans on the other side of the channel. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. The German Navy, the Kriegsmarine, had very quickly quashed all hope of an invasion. They simply didn't have the ships to fight the British Royal Navy. And as for the long-cherished British myth that the Germans would have invaded if they'd been able to win air superiority, the German Air Force didn't even bother to attend meetings about the invasion. They could do nothing about the Royal Navy because German planes were useless at bombing ships. The Air Force, the Luftwaffe's priority, was to bomb British ports, airfields and cities to force a surrender and to prevent an invasion ever being needed. But as many writers have pointed out, and as we've seen in an earlier discussion, up and down the Channel Coast and in German boatyards, energetic preparations were underway. German engineers were converting ships and barges and fishing smacks into troop carriers, constructing rafts, landing craft and submersible tanks, and a vast array of other paraphernalia for an amphibious attack. One German officer had his men, who came from the inland mountains, lining up along the seashore at nine o'clock each morning for swimming lessons. Unfortunately, he forgot that the time of the tide changes each day. So for the first couple of weeks at nine o'clock, the water line just got further and further away. Anyway, it certainly looked as though the Germans were preparing to invade. So what on earth was all this about? What we need to do is look around the room, because this is a story English-speaking people have always told from a British point of view. But everything changes when we begin to investigate the German documents. German army headquarters received a memo on the evening of the 28th of July 1940 from Sieg's which literally means Sea War Leadership. We might call it the Maritime Warfare Command. It was now 12 days since Hitler's Directive Number 16 had formally started invasion preparations. Whatever bizarre machines the engineers were rigging up on the Channel Coast, the memo completely ruled out landing boats on open beaches. It added that, even with all the improvised shipbuilding, it would take the Kriegsmarine 10 days just to carry the first wave of troops across. Well, the Army's Chief of Staff, General Halder, wrote in his diary, if that's true, we can throw away the whole plan of an invasion. Two days later, Halder met with officers from the Kriegsmarine, the German Navy, and noted, quotes, the operation cannot be protected against the British Navy. Effectiveness of air force against naval craft said to be exaggerated. The Navy, in all probability, will not provide us this autumn with the means for a successful invasion of Britain. 
The Germans did not, however, halt their invasion preparations. High-level talks even went on about a possible invasion plan. But a workable solution never seemed to get any nearer. On Wednesday, the 7th of August 1940, senior German officers from Army and Navy met again, this time on a train near the French coast. It was now just over three weeks since Hitler had announced plans for an invasion of England. That's already three out of the precious ten summer weeks in which a channel crossing might just be possible. The army offered a compromise. They could attack with 30 divisions spread along what they thought was a relatively narrow 130-kilometre front from Folkestone to Brighton, with a second landing further west at Lyme Bay. The naval officers were horrified. Otto Schneewind from the Maritime Warfare Command spluttered that the demands of the army were, quotes, far-reaching and entirely impossible for the Navy to fulfil. Army and Navy differences were still, obviously, he concluded, irreconcilable. The Kriegsmarine went on to explain that they would require 13 days for the first wave. The army demanded four, but even once the first few thousand soldiers got safely ashore, German sailors would have to go on crossing and recrossing the channel in barges for another 42 days. Faced with the overwhelming force of the British Royal Navy, it would be suicide at sea. The admirals then produced data on currents and tides and proposed a narrower attack. It would be a single assault across a front of about 100 kilometres between Folkestone and Beachy Head. The army gasped. 100 kilometres was far too narrow. It would be death on the beaches. General Halter scribbled in his old-fashioned Gablesberger shorthand the Navy's railway carriage proposals were, quote, utterly prohibitive. I might as well send my men straight into a sausage machine. But still the invasion wasn't called off. As the days of good summer weather ticked steadily by, were the German commanders just doggedly optimistic that the enormous, fundamental problems in launching an amphibious invasion could somehow still be solved? There is another possibility. Because after the war, a number of senior German officers claimed that Operation Sea Lion to invade Britain had never been anything but a bluff. After the war, a number of senior German officers claimed that all the elaborate preparations for an invasion of Britain in the summer of 1940 were never anything but a bluff. Now, plenty of historians have dismissed this claim as an ex post facto justification. Well, they would say that, wouldn't they? But it bears closer examination, not least because it would be the most obvious, common-sense explanation of why the Germans threw considerable resources of cash and time into what everybody agreed was an obviously impossible enterprise. One of the best-known examples is General Gunther Blumentritt. Now, he had been Chief of Operations Section for the German Invasion Forces. In January 1949, he was quoted in an Irish military journal, An Kossentor. You'll have to forgive my Irish pronunciation. Now, that date, January 1949, is worth considering just for a moment. In that month, the Irish had every reason to publish anti-British propaganda. That was the month they had finally shaken off their last link to the British monarchy and declared themselves a republic. At the same moment Blumentritt's article was hitting the press stands, the Irish foreign minister was loudly denouncing what he saw as the British occupation of the north of Ireland. So it could be that the Irish were willing to give the Germans the benefit of the doubt. 
Recalling the summer of 1940, Blumentritt wrote that, quote, the resources available to me were ridiculous. His own section had been assigned nothing but a few Paris barges lashed together and towed by small motorboats. There were no proper maps or intelligence. There was plenty of detailed organisation, but only because, quote, a bluff can succeed only when everything is done as if the operation were meant seriously. At the higher level of our staff, Sea Lion was approached academically rather than zealously. We couldn't take it seriously. Now, Blumentritt might have been trying to cover up his own war record, but what he says chimes with everything else we know about Operation Sea Lion, the supposed invasion of England. 10th of August, a staff officer at the 12th German Infantry Division sent his commanders a memo. Quote, Due to the lack of useful information, I'm sending the following report. The joke was that what he attached was a translation of Julius Caesar's account of his invasion of Britain in 55 BC. <laughs> Other officers went looking for books about William the Conqueror and Napoleon's attempt to invade England in 1804 by digging a tunnel. What really struck Blumentritt was that, quotes, neither Hitler nor any of his personal staff seemed to take any interest in the operations or the plans. This, wrote the general in 1949, was, quotes, quite the contrary to his custom, that's Hitler's, in other cases. On another occasion, Blumentritt told the British journalist Basil Littlehart that senior officers thought of Sea Lion as a kind of war game. Quotes, Field Marshal von Rundstedt, his immediate superior, did not take the affair seriously and busied himself little with the work. His chief of staff, General von Sodenstern, frequently went on leave. Von Rundstedt himself told an American journalist in October 1945, well, we looked at the whole thing as a sort of game, because it was obvious that no invasion was possible when our navy was not in a position to cover a crossing of the channel or carry reinforcements. Nor was the German Air Force capable of taking on these functions. Now we know these last comments to be true, so why shouldn't we take the rest of what Blumentritt and Rundstedt say seriously? Let's just look a moment a little more closely at the original memo written on the 30th of June 1940 by Alfred Jodl, Chief of the German Forces Operations Staff, senior to both Raider, Charge of the Navy, and Holder, Chief of Staff in the Army. We looked at this memo briefly in our first conversation on this subject. 30th of June, the date of the memo, was just 13 days after the French surrender, and it was the first time a senior German officer had discussed the problem of dealing with Britain. Jodl recommended getting an invasion force ready. But look more closely, the German commander is clear that a seaborne landing on the British coast is, quotes, a last resort. Preparations, he writes, quotes, should be made to exert political pressure on Britain to remain inactive. What Jodl is implying is that the Germans should give the appearance of planning an invasion in order to, quotes, exert political pressure and persuade Britain to, quotes, remain inactive. Now, given the extreme difficulty of mounting an amphibious assault on Britain, that would be a perfectly reasonable strategy. It makes sense of why Hitler accordingly wrote his directive number 16 in an uncharacteristically ambiguous way. The invasion of Britain would only happen, wrote the Führer, if necessary. So was Operation Sea Lion to invade Britain a bluff or a reality? Historian David Clark suggests that Sea Lion quotes should be interpreted as a threat rather than a bluff. Well, if it was a threat, it was, we argue, never more than a pretty hollow threat. 
It was very effectively rendered null by the Kriegsmarine's utter inability to contest the Royal Navy's command of the Channel. And as we've seen, it didn't take long for the British to work that out. But Sea Lion was also a creature of German inter-service rivalry. When he received Jodl's report, Army General Holder met Admiral Schneewind and they immediately agreed together that, quotes, the prerequisite is air superiority. Well, as we've seen, that was a nonsense because German planes could do nothing about the British Navy. But then they added significantly that air superiority, quotes, might make a landing unnecessary. So if the Luftwaffe could open the British skies to unlimited bombing, there wouldn't be any need for an invasion. Well, that would have suited everybody if the Luftwaffe defeated Britain on its own. And as we've seen, that was the Luftwaffe's view too. It seems to have been an open secret that Goering, chief of the Luftwaffe of the Air Force, absent from sea lion meetings, was working to his own agenda. So long as the army and the Kriegsmarine went on making it look as if an invasion might happen, a sustained Luftwaffe assault might be enough to secure a British surrender. More than that, Goering was a politician, not a professional military man. He was very unpopular with the top military brass. His air force ate up 40% of Germany's military budget. 40%! All summer, German generals and admirals met, with or without the Führer, to discuss Operation Sealand, and every time they failed to come up with a plan. But every time they deflected criticism by pointing to Goering's failure so far to achieve air superiority. It was a very convenient excuse. The fact was, as we've seen in our previous discussions, it would actually have made very little difference to the chances of a successful crossing if Goering had achieved air superiority. But it was a very convenient fiction to sustain, and one which undermined an unpopular rival for the Fuhrer's attention. Historian David Clark makes a further point. On reading Directive Number 16, that's Hitler's directive to start the invasion plans, it's immediately apparent that this is not a bluff, but it is a contingency. It was, argues Clark, something the Germans might do if all else failed. Well, Clark probably has a point. After all, if Directive Number 16 in any way reflected Hitler's even faintly possible intentions, then it was important for his commanders to do something about it. They knew they must, at all costs, not fall foul of his notorious mercurial changes of mind as the summer progressed. This was, after all, the man who'd ordered the invasion of the Netherlands and France 11 times and cancelled each time. Each time the German commanders had to pull their men back from the borders at the last minute. So whatever the daunting, not to say ridiculous, impossibilities of an amphibious attack across the Channel, Hitler's senior commanders were forced to make contingency plans in case Hitler was ever crazy enough to order the invasion to proceed. So the crucial question is this. Was it ever likely that Hitler would issue the order to go ahead? The deputy chief of OKW, that's the German High Command, Walter Wallemund, agreed with Blumentritt. He reckoned that, from the start, Hitler, quotes, showed an unusual lack of interest in Sea Lion. So is it possible that Hitler himself did not actually want to invade Britain? All through the summer weeks of 1940, the German army and navy made elaborate plans for the invasion of Britain, even though virtually nobody, or at least anybody in a position to know, believed it was possible. But it was a useful threat to put political pressure on the British to come to terms. 
It was also a contingency, just in case Hitler himself was ever mad enough to order the operation to go ahead. But the harder you look, the more unlikely that becomes. All the evidence suggests that what Hitler wanted was peace with Britain, not defeat and occupation. On the 13th of July 1940, General Holder, Chief of the German General Staff, had flown from his base at Fontainebleau in German-occupied France for an 11 o'clock meeting with Hitler at his mountain retreat near Salzburg in German-occupied Austria. Hitler had named it the Berghof, Mountain Farm, and had forced the locals off an entire stretch of spectacular terrain. Not surprisingly, Goering the politician had a house nearby. After the meeting, General Holder noted in his shorthand diary that the Führer, quotes, is greatly puzzled by Britain's persisting unwillingness to make peace. The forces of the German Reich might, Hitler admitted, have to invade Britain, but, quotes, only if no other way is left to bring terms with Britain. Holder's notes on the meeting go on, that using force against Britain is, quotes, actually much against his grain, he means Hitler's. And he continues, The reason is that a military defeat of Britain will bring about the disintegration of the British Empire, and this wouldn't be of any benefit to Germany. German blood would be shed to accomplish something that would benefit only Japan, United States and others. End of quote. What we're doing here is trying to discuss the discourses that lie behind this whole episode. We've got somehow to get closer to Hitler's mind. In his mind, the British were racially related to the Germans and natural partners in world leadership. If I destroy this empire, he reportedly told Kurt's student, a paratroop leader, 500 million yellow, brown and black natives will become leaderless, murder and death will stalk and the whole world will go to pieces. That's the way Hitler's mind worked. When Hitler met the Luftwaffe flying ace Adolf Galland, he explained, quotes, that the war against England is completely against my interests. The English population are equal to us. They are related to us. It's a very significant phrase. They are related to us. As historian John Toland noted, Hitler commented to his liaison man, Walter Huell, I don't want to conquer Britain. I want to come to terms with her. I want to force her to accept my friendship. Force being the operative word, but it wasn't just that Hitler thought of the British as his cousins and didn't want to hand their empire to, quote, natives, or the Japanese, or Americans. He had a much more pressing reason for wanting to come to an agreement with them. Hitler's war was entirely focused on the invasion of the Soviet Union. It sprawled across rich agricultural territory with valuable mineral resources, lands Hitler believed had originally been German. By, quote, retaking this land as Lebensraum, literally living space, Hitler believed he was asserting an ancient right. He would also make his people invulnerable to the kind of blockade that had forced its defeat in 1918. So the Soviet invasion was, as historians Noakes and Pridham put it in their edition of Nazi documents, quotes, the core of his programme. On the 21st of July 1940, Hitler met Field Marshal Walter von Brauschitz, the commander-in-chief of the German army. He told him, as if he needed reminding, that, quotes, the crossing of the channel appears very hazardous. Instead of speeding up invasion preparations, however, Hitler ordered more assaults by air and by submarine on British convoys crossing the Atlantic. Also, more propaganda pressure on the British. Dr Goebbels, Hitler's propaganda chief, responded by broadcasting the medieval sage Nostradamus's prophecy that London would be destroyed in 1940. But according to Brauschitz's notes of the meeting, 
Having waved away the invasion plans for Britain, Hitler then went on to say, quote, our attention must be turned to tackling the Russian problem and prepare planning. Now the Führer was back to his usual hectoring decisive norm. The German objective would be to penetrate far enough to enable air force to smash Russia's strategic areas. This operation, codenamed Barbarossa, would be a monster. It would take 80 to 100 army divisions. It would make Sea Lion look like a puppet show. Unlike Sea Lion, which was being made up as they went along, detailed planning for Barbarossa would start there and then, 10 months in advance of its launch date. 10 days later, Hitler met his military and naval chiefs. After a desultory review of Sea Lion, the meeting turned to the Soviet Union. Decision, jotted General Holder in his shorthand diary. The sooner Russia is crushed, the better. Shattered to its roots with one blow. Back to his old style. So, the invasion of the Soviet Union was by far the most important of Hitler's objectives. But he knew that if he was to cross the Soviet border, he was working against the clock. Because in 1937-1938, Stalin had purged the Soviet armed forces of opposition. His secret police executed 75 out of 80 men in the Supreme Military Council. 75 out of 80. Also 90 generals, three of the five marshals, over half the corps commanders, all 11 deputy commissars for defence, all the commanders of the country's military districts, all but one admiral, and every single Air Force commander. It's extraordinary. So if Stalin were ever to take Hitler on, he'd need roomfuls of new commanders, and that would take time. Hitler therefore needed to invade the Soviet Union as soon as possible, even perhaps as early as the autumn of 1940. Only the appalled opposition of his most senior commanders could persuade him to delay until the spring of 1941. Any longer than that, and Stalin's armed forces would have time to bring on a new cohort of commanders. The USSR was also building weapons at a breakneck pace. But a precondition of the attack on the Soviet Union was to secure Germany's western flank. It needed doing quickly and efficiently. Hitler couldn't afford to tie up his forces on a daunting and expensive amphibious operation, possibly followed by an exhausting occupation of Britain. What he feared, recalled the deputy chief of OKW, the German high command, was, quote, the Russian threat would become overpowering while strong German forces were again pinned down in Western Europe. Hitler didn't, however, want the British defeated and the empire to collapse. That may even be why he had, after all, halted the crushing German advance for a critical 24 hours and allowed the British army to escape from the beaches at Dunkirk. It was something Churchill said he could, quote, never understand. But Hitler even dreamt that the British might join him in his imperial ambitions. It's very instructive to look back at what Hitler had written in 1924 in his turgid autobiography and manifesto Mein Kampf. Quotes, if land was desired in Europe, it could be obtained by and large only at the expense of Russia. And then he adds, quotes, for such a policy, there was only one ally in Europe, England. So on the 19th of July 1940, Hitler appealed to the British to come to terms. He called it his, quote, last appeal to reason. He predicted that Churchill would sneak off to Canada, leaving the ordinary British citizens to face an awful vengeance, his words. A great empire will be destroyed, he warned. But then he added almost wistfully that it was, quote, an empire which I'd never intended to destroy. To Hitler, it's all so obvious. The British would have their empire overseas, and he would have his in Europe. 
As historian Michael Burley has shown, Britain was never part of the, quote, new order that Hitler believed he could impose on Europe. The most important thing for Hitler in the summer of 1940 was to keep Britain and her empire intact, but to prevent the British from interfering with the invasion of the Soviet Union. It didn't fundamentally matter whether the British surrendered or made an alliance, or even if they just sat on their hands. They must, in Jodl's words, which seemed at first vague, but now look rather precise. The British must, quote, remain inactive. The job of the German forces in the summer of 1940 was precisely to get the British out of the war as fast as possible, somehow, anyhow, quickly as practicable, and with a minimum of expense. They could bomb, they could use threat, they could use bluff. The last thing Hitler wanted, however, was a costly, bloody and protracted amphibious invasion against a potential ally. So now it becomes obvious why Hitler's Directive No. 16, which brought Operation Sea Lion to life, had been so half-hearted. The directive specifically called not for the conquest of Britain, but much more precisely for her, quotes, elimination as a base from which the war against Germany can be fought. It seems impossible to avoid the conclusion that the far-fetched German invasion of 1940 was primarily a strategic bluff, or threat if you prefer. What it was meant to achieve, together with the relentless Luftwaffe assault, was to get the British to negotiate, or at worst, to give up trying to disrupt the German war machine. But it turns out this wasn't the only bluff that was being played on the German side. The best evidence suggests that Hitler had no desire to invade Britain. Sea Lion, the plan to invade Britain, was a threat. Perhaps it was even just a bluff to get the British to come to terms. But behind the scenes, it turns out, that at the same time, the head of the German Navy was also playing his own game of bluff. Keith Bird, Gross Admiral Raider's biographer, concludes that, quote, Sea Lion was always bottom of Raider's list. But he found it very useful to go along with all the preparations, because it was a useful means to corner more resources for his cash-starved Kriegsmarine. Meanwhile, historian Peter Schenk argues that by this time, July 1940, the senior German army commanders, Brauschitsch and Halder, were also playing their game of bluff. They profoundly disagreed with Hitler's intention to attack the Soviet Union. Far from being, as they're often portrayed, doggedly obedient to the Fuhrer, they disliked his political nonsense, and especially his indecisiveness. Quotes, the army is supposed to get everything nice and ready jotted Hulda in his shorthand, quotes, without ever getting any straightforward instructions. They didn't believe the Nazi insanity of Mein Kampf, with its preaching about living space. As military men, they could only see ruin on the long, cold road to Moscow. On the 30th of July, 1940, after Hitler's orders to start preparations for the invasion of Russia, that's Operation Barbarossa, Brauschitsch and Halder secretly discussed with their naval counterparts the possibility of building friendly relations with the Soviets instead, working secretly with them to carve up the Balkans and the Eastern Mediterranean, anything to stop the invasion. It seems, in fact, that Halder, Brauschitsch and Walter Wallemont, Deputy Chief of OKW, the German High Command, may actually have encouraged Hitler to waste time preparing a nonsense invasion of England, as Schenk concludes, it was useful, quotes, to divert Hitler from his plans for the East. Now, it may seem to you extremely unlikely 
that senior officers would have been trying to outmaneuver and bluff each other, and even Hitler himself, in the Nazi Third Reich. We're so used to Leni Riefenstahl's films of formidably serried ranks of uniformed, terrified dragoon devotees and countless war movies of ruthless German efficiency. But among historians there's been a long debate, dating back at least to the early 1980s, about the nature of Hitler's state. It focuses on whether Hitler and his sidekicks had a clear idea of where they were going from the beginning, or whether they made it up as they went along. Historians of the period divide themselves into intentionalists, Hitler knew what he was doing, and functionalists, he made it up as he went along. Now you might argue this is a bit precious, since every regime through the whole of history is always a mixture of the two, and you would be right. But what makes the Nazis look different was that they believed in the Führer Prinzip, which basically meant that in a struggle between races and individuals, the strongest will always prevail. They applied that not only to races, believing the Germans would inevitably conquer, but also to individuals, to government departments, to military services and everything else. So rather than set out a single plan and impose it, Hitler habitually left his henchmen to fight it out among themselves, believing that the best outcome would always fight its way to the top. Chaos and infighting was endemic in Hitler's regime. Call it polycratic chaos, if you like, and some historians do, or just a particularly bad case of good old interdepartmental rivalry. But it means that we shouldn't expect there to be any sharp and regimented plan to deal with Britain in 1940. We'd expect there to be months of infighting, bluff, counter-bluff, bidding and manoeuvring. And there was. But they probably needn't have bothered. After the war, Volomont realised that all along Hitler, quotes, was most probably at that time already pursuing his real purpose. The whole charade of the invasion of Britain had been, quotes, concealing impending plans against Russia. What it means is that the Fuhrer was probably just using Operation Sea Lion, giving an appearance of invading Britain, to conceal his impending plan to invade the Soviet Union and lull Stalin in Moscow into a false sense of security. After all, no sane commander would ever attempt to take on Britain and the Soviet Union at the same time. At the end of September 1940, Hitler even tried to tempt Stalin into a plan to divide the British Empire between them. It was never a real offer. Hitler stated many times that he wanted to keep the British Empire intact. It was just a bid to keep the Soviet leader off the scent for a few months longer, to distract him from the very real preparations going on in the East to invade the Soviet Union. For all these reasons, throughout the summer of 1940, Hitler continued to order preparations for an invasion of England and his senior commanders, for all their own private reasons, went on playing the game. Several different games, in fact, all at the same time. But of course, Hitler kept putting off a decision actually to launch the invasion of Britain. Senior officers continued in a desultory sort of way to discuss plans and to criticise the Luftwaffe for its lack of progress. German soldiers energetically jumped in and out of landing craft and learned to swim but probably none of the senior officers, from Colonel Blumentritt enjoying a long summer of rich Parisian cuisine, up to Hitler on his vegetarian teetotal diet, actually believed invasion was ever going to happen. Until, that is, the end of August 1940, when everything changed. As we shall see next time at the History Café.
For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. Thank you.